All right. We titled tonight, We Can Work It Out. I title it this for two reasons. One, it's a Beatles song that is one of my favorite Beatles songs. But that's not enough. You can't just title sermons after your favorite songs. Well, you can, and, and I will try. Um, but the second reason is because this is me reading the Bible and living for God. And I think it's you too. We can wrestle this out. We are allowed to wrestle this out. We are allowed to work on what these things mean and take it to the mat and not end up with the final answer, but end up with something we can live with. And then we move forward and then we keep growing and we keep reading. Not only we can work it out, but we are obligated to. And I want to give a disclaimer. When you start to talk about finished work or grace, a lot of times we, we lean towards, hey, you can't do anything. Jesus did everything. Jesus finished the work. There's nothing for you to do. And what can come out of that is apathy or well, I don't have to do anything at all. And although we all know better, there's no room for apathy. You still know, as well as I do, that what can come out of, hey, you can't do anything, he did everything, is, well, then what do I do? And you go, well, you just believe. But then there's all this stuff to wrestle with. There's all this stuff we don't understand. You go, what do we do with that? You go, well, you just sit back and let the Lord show you. But that's not the biblical response to things that are over your head. It wasn't the Jacob response in the wilderness to see, to see an angel to wrestle with and go, okay, no wrestling. I don't wrestle. It's just God does, does whatever he wants. Just pin me. And that's not the way you do it. And so... We do get to work it out. It's our privilege. It's our honor to work with the text. And I said work with it. Don't work against it. Work with it. If you're going to run up against scriptures you don't understand, great, beautiful. Don't get scared of that. Don't run away from them. You don't have to land on the final answer, but you can at least contend with it. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is absolute supreme example of three chapters of the Bible where we go, really not sure what to do with that verse think I got that verse nailed. Don't even want to read that verse. You know, I've been there. I'm, in, I'm there every week. And I just kind of look at some of them and go, not, not yet. It's also why I didn't lock myself into a chronological left to right on this thing. I want to be able to move around, stay fluid a little bit as we watch what the Holy Spirit does. Well, my wrestling meets up this week with uh, another moment in the sort of Christian liturgical calendar. Here we are, uh, and in the Protestant world, we kind of stay away from a lot of these high church terms. Um, it might be costing us some biblical revelation, to be honest with you. The fact that a lot of us in the Protestant, Western Protestant world don't celebrate or talk about, say, Epiphany, which is what we're coming up on right now. In fact, Thursday marks Epiphany on the Christian calendar. The space between Christmas and Epiphany depending on when you start counting, some count Christmas Day, some count the day after Christmas, who cares? 12 days in between Christmas and Epiphany, leading to the 12 days of Christmas, more than just a clever song. Um, it's those, it marks that time between the birth of Christ and the revealing. Epiphany is the Greek word for to reveal. And so it's the revealing of Christ. In the Western church world, Epiphany is the revelation of Christ to the Magi. It's the wise men, the first Gentiles, having Jesus revealed to them. In the Eastern church world, say Eastern Orthodox tradition, Eastern Orthodox actually celebrate Christmas this coming Thursday because that is Epiphany, the day that Jesus was baptized and revealed as Son of God to the world. 
So he is, whereas the Western church, it's revealed to Gentiles from the East, the kings, we three kings of Orient. And in the Eastern world, it's Jesus revealed as son of God to the world. In either case, Epiphany is the revelation of Jesus to the world. Jesus is here. Whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you are far off or whether you are near, uh, Jesus is the son of God. And that is the initial Epiphany, the initial revelation of which we then move into multiple revelations because I'm not finished having revelations of Jesus and you aren't finished having revelations of Jesus. It's hard to get people sometimes to talk about Jesus or the revelations they're having of him, but it seems like it should be the thing on our, on our lips to talk about what we're seeing in Christ. This is that season, that season uh, of epiphany. And we have so many things that sort of get derived from this moment that sort of get co-opted. Um, a lot of tr Christian traditions would leave out food in honor so that when the wise men get done with their journey, they'd have food to eat the next morning. We took that and made it milk and cookies for Santa. I think it's always kind of interesting how some of the things we use in, in our American traditions are really just sort of co-opted from Christian traditions. I'm not saying we need to go back to honoring and celebrating the liturgical calendar strictly, but it is worth looking at once in a while because it does give us this unified sense of what we are about. Well, epiphany is a revealing. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a, a little bit of a word for revelation. It's not the exact same word. That's apocalypsis. That's a true unveiling. That's where something is lifted up off of. It's been shrouded. Whereas epiphany is, is almost a moment. We've even taken that word into the English to mean, I had an epiphany. What do we mean by that? I saw something I'd never seen before. I figured something out tonight. Well, this is the season for that. Christ revealed, the day of lights, all of that. With that in mind, and that idea of having him revealed and that idea of epiphany, I have been having my own epiphany because I've been working with and struggling with the Sermon on the Mount, namely the Beatitudes, all the way through all of the things that Jesus talks about in that sermon. And I haven't been able to land exactly where I want to land, but I'm, I've had some things in my spirit this week that I've wrestled with that I wanted to share with you because I feel like if I'm there, maybe you're there or you'll, you've been there and there's probably someone watching who is there. And sometimes, and this is going to sound really elementary, but sometimes, you know what we really need when we study? Permission. You just need permission to think differently. And, and I know that sounds really childish. Who needs permission? We're adults. We don't need permission. Well, if you're like me, you're raised in the church. You're raised in an environment of lead, church leadership and church hierarchy or whatever. There was a way to interpret the Bible. There were certain questions you could ask. There were certain questions you didn't ask. Um, you needed permission to think. I, that's, again, simple. Yeah, but I think kind of resonates with some of us. You needed permission to go, okay, think about that differently. Yeah, you can't think about that differently. What do you not believe? Oh, that's, that's heretical. Don't ask that question. Okay, you have permission. And you don't need the permission from me, although, yes, you do. And here's what I mean by that. You don't really need permission from me, but what happens is we do wait for permission from someone we're learning from or from our pastor or from our evangelist or from our author or from our mentor. We wait for permission to go, you can think outside the box. I feel like in grace circles, we've lost a little something 
of being able to really wrestle with things beyond us because we're afraid we're wrestling ourselves into works. And the head nods tell me I'm right on that because I've been there. So we come up against something we don't really get. And if we'll go to a fa- like a favorite preacher or a favorite author, and if they don't say much about it, then we don't really wrestle with it because we don't want to get in over our head. And we don't want to labor at it too long because, you know, we don't want to be into works and we don't want that to rob our peace and rob our rest. And so we just sort of, you know, there's just a lot of stuff we go, eh, oh, okay, whatever. I, I just know Jesus finished the work. And I don't want to land there. I'm just not content to land there, especially when there's so much richness in this sermon. And I get it. I don't, I get it that I don't get it. I'm okay with that. And so what can I do? What, how, how do I move forward? How do you move forward? So I've had an epiphany, timely, because here we are. Um, and it starts right here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. That's okay, because this will give you permission to deal with the Sermon on the Mount. And that's all we're looking for sometime. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, we qualify. All right? We are his beloved. As you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I want to stop there for a moment, and I want to point out the obvious. We titled this little message, We Can Work It Out. Philippians, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, according to his good pleasure. One quick thing is get rid of the word his. That's not there in the Greek. So I think the translators were a little thrown off by the fact that Paul didn't tell whose good pleasure it was. And the reason he didn't say whose good pleasure it was is because he's writing to his beloved. Of course, it's their good pleasure. So God is looking for your good pleasure. Why does he need to work out his good pleasure in you? It's your good pleasure and it's him that's working in you. So what's your role? Now, I know how we've handled this text in Communities of Grace is we've said, and I've said this, and I don't disagree with this. I just don't know that it's complete, all right? We've said, God is doing a work in you. It's a work of righteousness. It's a work of sanctification. It's a work of justifying. It's a work of forgiveness. He's doing all of that. What you need to do is work that out in your life. In other words, just pay attention to what he's doing so that what he's doing comes out in your life. But that doesn't speak to what the work is. Because Paul very clearly says, work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, according to good pleasure. So whatever he's doing is mirrored by what you do. In other words, if you think God did nothing and he's just sort of laying there like a slug, then that's your response. That's what you ought to do. Just lay there and sort of act like a slug and see what happens. If that's what you think is working out your salvation, good luck with that. Because I don't think God is laying there like a slug doing nothing. I think God is proactive in you. So therefore, if he's working and you're supposed to work in the manner he works, how can you be proactive in the way he's being proactive? God works in, you work out. It's not work to be saved. 
It's not work to get salvation. It's work out your salvation that's already in you. So let's get rid of the idea that Paul's trying to tell you how to work to be saved, work to get to heaven, work to get anointed, work to get blessed. It's nowhere in the context, much less the text. What you are working on is bringing out whatever he has in. Sounds like a process because otherwise you wouldn't work. You'd just do or believe or accept or receive. But you work. And it's not a word that's used a lot in the New Testament. It's honestly not. We don't see a lot about work. But when we do, we probably should pay attention. What we're given permission to do in Philippians 2 is work out the stuff regarding our salvation. Now, there's a lot of stuff regarding your salvation. Give you a hint. Sermon on the Mount is full of stuff for saved people to pay attention to. None of them are to save people, but it's full of stuff for saved people to pay attention to. Now you have a salvation that's been done in you by Christ. What do you do? Work that out. What's that look like? Work out the stuff in regards to your salvation. Maybe it's a little bit like this. Let's go, let's jump back. We're going to come back to this, Nola. So let's leave for a second. Go to the next one. Go to Matthew 5. Here we go. You are, where are we? Matthew 5, 14. Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp. Put it under a basket. Put it on a lampstand. Gives light to everyone in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is an interesting passage in the Sermon on the Mount in that it reflects what Jesus says of himself in John 10 when he goes, I am the light of the world. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world, which seems bizarre that both Jesus and us could be the light of the world. How's that possible? Because we have him working in us and therefore we are releasing or working something out of us. We are the light. We don't hide. We shine before men so they may see our good works. Now go back, Noah, to Philippians 2. Okay? Work out with fear and trembling whatever he's worked in you. This is the tough part. Do it without complaining and disputing. <laughs> good luck with that, right? How many, how many of us have broken that one? I've never been in, I've hardly been in a church service where we didn't do break that one complaining and disputing, much less meet Christians who live their lives by that rule. I mean, we break that one basically in music practice, like prayer meeting. It's like complain, dispute. What are you kidding? We don't know what to do if we don't get to complain and dispute. So this is already asking a lot. But look at 15, 16. So that you may become blameless and harmless, innocent. A little bit better word in the Greek. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Watch this. It's going to sound very Sermon on the Mounty. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. What's the whole point of working out your salvation? So that you may shine as lights in a darkened world. What does Jesus say to us in Matthew 5? You are the light of the world. You don't hide under a bushel. You, you shine so that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Sounds like the same message, in effect, with one interesting caveat. And that is, you're going to have to work out whatever he has worked in. So permission to go to work, granted. Permission to work it out. Permission to fail. Permission to not get it right. Listen, if, if we didn't have permission to fail, go, go back a screen. We, we joked around with it, but 
One more, go back. Look, 14. I mean, if we don't have permission to fail, we're all messed up. Do it without disputing and complaining. Okay, well, we get an F. We dispute and complain constantly, right? So let's not lose sight of the fact that we're in a new covenant, that we're children of grace, that there's no condemnation. Salvation's in here. But let's not stop there. This is my fear, is that we stop there too much. We go, that's good, I'm good, I'm going to heaven. It's good. devil can't have me. It's all in here. Work out with fear and trembling. There's going to be a little trepidation. Not trepidation, I'm going to hell. Trepidation is... Does the light shine in a world desperately needing the light? I'm trembling that my light isn't quite doing what lights are supposed to do. I've been told by Paul and I've been told by Jesus that I am a light that's not supposed to be hidden. I really want to make sure I'm not a light that hides. And then explode onto the scene, Sermon on the Mount. Because right after Jesus gives the whole light of the world speech, it gets serious. Let me give you just chapter 5. Okay? Not the whole chapter. We can't stand here and read the whole chapter because I can't even get through two verses without stopping and talking. So not dare going to do that. But look at the highlights. No, just ignore 6 and 7. Just know that 6 and 7 are coming. This is a third of the message. And look at the stuff that's just way out of our league. Greatness in the kingdom is doing whatever Jesus tells you to do. Start there. Want to be great? Do what Jesus tells you to do. Want to be the least? Go the other route. Okay, so let's start... Out of the gates, here we go. Whatever Jesus says, this is the key to greatness in the kingdom. This is how I get the light to shine in the world. Two, murder is not just killing someone. It begins in the heart. It starts with words of anger. Jesus will even say, if you call a man a fool, boom, you've committed murder. Most of us have murdered thousands of people. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not making light of our condition. Trust me. You know my heart. I'm, I'm simply, I am trying to lighten the load a bit by giving you permission, but not permission to just overlook it and go, ha ah, look at that. None of us can do the Sermon on the Mount. Boy, I tell you what, I'm, I'm really glad we're having this series because that just really relieves me that I'm not required of any of this. Oh, don't skip number one. You see, because that one hangs out there. Want to know what it looks like to be great in the kingdom? He goes, pay attention, do what I say. You want to know what it looks like to shine as a light in a darkened world? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go to work wrestling with something bigger than yourself. It's already done in here. You've got all the tools you need. to. Do. There's going to be eight of these, by the way. Yeah, eight. And I'm just brushing chapter five. You've got all the tools to do all of them, but you're going to have to work this out. And working means sometimes you don't have all the answers. That's okay. Because that's our call. Murder begins in the heart. Don't have to just, it's not just about thou shalt not kill, because if it was thou shalt not kill, not very many of us have ever broken that. So Jesus comes along and goes, eh, it was way bigger than that. I didn't just not want you to kill people. I didn't want you to kill people in here, or kill people right here, or kill people up here. And so I want to go to work on the whole man, and we're going to work out your salvation that's already been worked in. Three, well, this is no fun. 525, Jesus will tell you to agree with your adversary in whatever way that your adversary 
speaks to you, agree with them. He says, agree with them quickly while you're on the way. Agree with them. He doesn't just, he doubles down. Agree with them quickly. Like, it's not an agreement after you've figured out it might be to your mutual benefit. No, it's agreed quickly before you've even got time to figure out if you're the one getting ripped off in the deal. This is asking a lot. Four. Oh, here we go again. Adultery begins in the heart. Now, we all like to laugh and on the we've killed thousands of people line. There won't be as much laughter on we've committed adultery a thousand times because we do tear off whether we like it or not. We all talk about oh, some sins are more, no sins more great than the other sin. Yeah, tell that to your spouse or tell that to your friend or tell that to your child or tell that to your whatever, you know better. And so we, we don't want to admit the severity of four compared to two, but I don't like it either because none of these are easy. I mean, you get into these and you start to go, what a load. And remember, he's worked a salvation in you. He's done. He's not, he's not done. He's done it. He's working a salvation in you. We're working out a salvation out of us. We're going to actually dig into all of these. This isn't our only shot at these. Don't, you're not getting off that easy, all right? You go, oh, I'm glad we, get, we breezed right through those. <laughs> chapter 5 was a snap. No, that's too, that's too easy. Um, there's a lot I want to say about each. I'm going to leave it alone because there's a lot that needs to be said when we get to each one of them. Uh, none of them are too I've said this to you before, but it's worth saying again. I don't believe Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount to crush you with condemnation. I disagree with that. And I know that's a popular teaching in the grace circles. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount to crush you so that you'd know you needed grace. Well, it would have been nice if he had said that. I mean, he goes into this whole sermon and not one time does he go, okay, so guess what? None of you guys can do this. That's why I'm going to go to the cross and die and resurrect so that the Holy Spirit can come and take care of that. He doesn't do that because he's given you, the, he's given you what his Father looks like. And he's giving you the ingredients of the kingdom. The kingdom is the world of the future propelled into the world of the present, which is why it's hard for us to understand as we'll look at the kingdom and go, hmm, this doesn't make sense. It's because it's from another dimension. God unapologetically shows you what it looks like in his dimension. And that isn't, doesn't go down easy sometimes. It's not necessarily simple. All right, let's keep going. Five. Uh, this isn't any fun either. Divorce is a breach of covenant because there's no church you can walk into in the world and say this, that you don't run the risk of hurting someone's feelings. And this is Jesus in Matthew 5 because he doesn't even give us back doors. Now we realize, and there's a lot we'll say when we get to this, and there's a little bit of a mess up in the Greek in the way this gets translated, but there's no mistaking that Jesus didn't want to see Divorce. You can't get around that in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, ah, eh, you know, he wasn't really that concerned with it. Wasn't that big of a deal. We know better. Why? Because it's a breach of covenant. And so, there it is. Six. Honesty is a heart issue. Now, why is that one big? Because this is the famous passage where Jesus goes, some people have sworn by the altar. Some people swear by Jerusalem. I say unto you, don't swear by either heaven or earth. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. In other words, don't tell the truth or be loyal or be honest or have integrity because you are attached to something or someone else. Do it because it's what you are. 
I swear on my mother's grave I will do that. Jesus would say to you, you should be able to do that without swearing on your mother's grave. Why do you bind yourself to the natural when you are supernatural? Your honesty, your integrity, your forgiveness should be based upon who you are in Christ, not what you committed yourself to in the natural. I took an oath. I made, an I made a pact. I gave my allegiance. And Jesus' challenge is a strange one to us. Jesus says, I want you to live it without the oath, without the allegiance, and without the swear. Let, it be, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be tied because you made a, a promise or you made an obligation. Do it because it's the right thing to do, not because you have to. Because how do you know they're not just doing it because they have to? And so this, this one, of all of these big chapter fives, this one gets the least amount of preaching. We don't, it hardly ever gets quoted or talked about. But it's a biggie because it's the seat of honesty. Not an honesty tied to the natural realm, but an honesty tied to the supernatural realm in which what, how we live isn't based on what we're tied to in this dimension. And this is very important to Jesus as he lays out the kingdom that we start to understand our role within the dimension. Seven, don't retaliate, give of yourself. Easily the least exciting and hardest to do of all of them that Jesus talks about. The don't retaliate is the famous if a man smites you on the cheek, turned in the other one. We're so determined for that to not mean what it means that we try to dig out the Greek and the context on what it meant, get, meant to get hit on the right cheek versus the left because the right cheek was a military challenge or was a challenge of integrity or honor. We have worked so hard for this to not mean what Jesus had it to mean. And that ought to tell us that it's a message from another dimension, a message from another kingdom. Give of yourself. I, I, it's not going to be an easy one. It's not, it's, it's, he, asked, he tells you to carry it one, you're going to carry it two. He sues you for your coat, give him your cloak. You go, man, what kind of world do we live in if that's what we have? Those are the things we wrestle with and that we're challenged with. Number eight, the least fun of them all. Because it makes the least amount of sense. I mean, you love people that love you, yes. Love people that are good to you, yes. Love people you want to love you. But love your enemies just doesn't make any sense at all. Because there's no, there's no good payback. And it's the riskiest kind of love you can ever give somebody. It's not risky to love people who love you. It's low risk to love your enemies. Kind of a world that we have if we love our enemies. Now, I put these up, and I put the subsequent chapter verse. You can go look them up. I put them up to be a little obnoxious, to be honest with you. Um, I wanted to show that, and this is just chapter 5. Okay, We ignored 6, ignore 7. There's some big stuff there, too. Um, I put it up to show that no matter what we think we know about the Sermon on the Mount, we get challenged. I don't trust people that say, I've, I've got that sermon nailed. I don't trust that ministry. I don't trust that writer. Yeah, I got that one nailed. I've been teaching that. Yeah, that one's, I love that. We'll work through that easily. Think, but I don't know anybody. How can you work through that easily? This is Jesus laying out the kingdom agenda in the natural world. It doesn't even compute half of what Jesus tells us. Here's the good news. I give you permission starting with the Apostle Paul, give you permission to work out the things that pertain to your salvation. But I warn you, when you work them out, you're going to do it with fear and trembling because it's going to be over your head. Now, let me give you some Jesus permission. Here's where the real epiphany began to happen. I mean, honestly, Philippians 2, I know that. I've preached that for years. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling as God worked in you to both will and do according to good pleasure. That's not a real epiphany. But this was. 
because honestly, wouldn't it just be nice if you could just, because this is the way I think. You get into these sticky situations, you go, wouldn't it be nice if you could just, you had like the miniature physical Jesus with you? And you, you had mini Jesus, you could pull him out of your pocket and stand him up, and there he was with his little robe on. And you went, hey, Jesus, um, this, this is what this guy just said to me. And this is what this woman just did. What should I do? Would you, would you take care of this for me? And then you could, and then you could just w- watch little Jesus. Or you could put little Jesus right up here to your ear. And little Jesus would talk to you. I don't know why I do this stuff. Because then, then you guys are lost the rest of the night. So you got little Jesus and little Jesus. Then you go, man, that'd be a good world, wouldn't it? Be a great world if you could just go up to Jesus. Okay, erase all that foolishness. All right, let's go back. Let's say we're in the time of Christ. Literally, Jesus on the earth. And we can walk, because I've thought about this a lot. I go, why didn't they ask this? Why didn't they ask that? Oh, they're asking the wrong questions, man. I'm so often reading my, my Gospels going, you idiots, that's not the question. You get a question with Jesus and that's what you ask? Ask this. You know, see if he's heard of a T-Rex. <laughs> get to the bottom of that. So I'm always like, you got better questions. You know what your problem is? You don't ask good enough questions. Okay. Let's imagine that we take one of these toughies to Jesus in a natural situation and we say, okay, take care of it for us. What would he do? And this is my epiphany. I had never seen it before. But we do have that moment in the Gospels. And it surfaced because of a message I got this week from someone who asked me if I would sort of mediate a condition in their family. Now, I don't know them, but, I, but this, is the, this is what happens when you speak into people's lives every day via podcasts or YouTube or whatever. They get to know you. You don't know them. They know you, at least what you put out there. And so they kind of trust that boy, this is a guy I wish would sit in our room and listen to our argument and then give us biblical counsel, which is fine, great. But I didn't know the people. And I, my response was, I don't know you. I don't know the parties involved. I don't feel like an arbiter. I'm not a mediator. And anyway, I moved on. But I, I'm listening to the Spirit because I'm trying, not expecting the Lord to say, yeah, go mediate but give me something. And he did. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. One person from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist... He buzzes the things which he possesses. So I have to stop and I have to stare at that again. Because what does Jesus say? Man, who made me the arbiter? You figure it out. And I'm going, this is the wrong answer. I got little Jesus. And I just asked Jesus to take care of it. How do we solve this interpersonal problem with me and Jamie? What are we going to do about this? If Jesus were here... He'd tell us what to do. 
And Jesus goes, who, who made me arbiter over how you treat him and how she treats her? I don't take care of this stuff, Jesus says. You do. A little light bulb goes on in me that says, we can work it out. It's our call. You see, we have to work it out. He's not going to. He dropped the kingdom into us and said, work it out with fear and trembling if you take it serious. And believe you me, if you take it serious, there'll be some fear and trembling. But you'll work it out or you won't get an answer. So you can ignore it and you can just go, I don't know, it's too much for me. I'm just going to read my favorite book or just going to go hear what brother so-and-so has to say or, you know, I'm just going to do whatever everybody else does. It's going to do what comes easy to me. You got that option. You can do that all day long. Or you can assume that you have a role in this world and a reason for existence and the kingdom has you as part of it because you're valuable to the kingdom. And then you can go to work not to get saved because you've already been saved. And you can go to work not to be one of the sons or daughters. You're already that. You can go to work not to be righteous because all you could do there is mess that up. But you could go to work to figure out how to live something like the Sermon on the Mount out on the earth. And then you could stop giving up because it's hard. You could stop giving up because, I don't know, I don't think that one's possible. Oh, okay, well, let's just throw our hands in the air and never worry about it again. Let's, let's don't ever wrestle with what we should do with it. Or we could wrestle with it every day. And maybe we know that we don't always land on the right answer, but man, wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where you did encounter people who thought to turn the other cheek or thought to go the second mile or thought to give their coat with their cloak or you see where we're going? We don't land there all the time. I don't do all of those eight. That's just a fraction of the whole sermon, by the way. We couldn't, we couldn't get through the eight in here without all of us admitting that we couldn't do it. But surely we could get into the eight and admit that it's worth wrestling over. That it's worth thinking about and praying about and walking out every day without thinking that we're back into works. Because surely we're sons and daughters enough to know that we're still going to be sons and daughters. Even if we fail daily, we're still sons and daughters. We're still the righteousness of God in Christ. And surely we're mature enough to know that if we have to confess that we failed in these things, it doesn't mean we don't believe we're forgiven. It just means we want to know it all over again. That yes, Lord, I failed and I come to you acknowledging that I failed you. Oh, don't do that. You're already forgiven. Why not do that? Why not bring it back to the Father? At least it's an acknowledgement that you know there's something worth wrestling with. And even in that, there can be some semblance of peace and the knowledge that you didn't get it today, but you're not gone yet. Maybe you get it tomorrow. This really did something to me because it was Jesus looking. He could have easily given an answer. He's Jesus. How hard is this? Hey, can you divide this with us? And you go, you've asked the right guy, man. You've got the one. And he goes, I don't do that sort of thing. Now, what we might do is look at this and go, yeah, but he will now that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And my rebuttal would be, are you sure? Are you sure that he moves into the interpersonal relationships and people and just gives answers? Or does he require you to listen to people? 
and cede some ground. Compromise. Admit when you're wrong. Say, I don't know. I don't know. Seems like maybe that would still work. Now, he doesn't leave you without advice. He doesn't leave you without a kingdom principle. Come to him with a problem. He'll give you a kingdom principle. He doesn't solve it. He just gives you... Because, man, you get to the end of verse 15, you still got questions. Take heed, beware of covetous one's life doesn't exist, the abundance of the things he possesses. And you walk away and go, hmm, well, then how much is too much? And he goes, okay, now you're starting to ask some questions that are worth asking. Maybe your life is more than what you own or what you have or what you go get. Maybe part of the reason you guys are fighting about an inheritance is because you've got issues that are way deeper than figuring out the inheritance. And that's what I'm finding the Lord does a lot of times, is He ends up putting something in front of me that gives me three more questions. I didn't know I should even be asking. And you know what? That's okay, because we can work it out. We get to work it out. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We don't work to get saved. We work because we are saved. Now, why fear and trembling? Because, man, this is over your head. Because this stuff's big. Because this affects the whole world. You know why fear and trembling? Because you are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And you penetrate the darkness. And you change lives. You have the potential to. That ought to cause you to stop and think. If we did this, we could... We, can you live loosely and lightly and easily doing this? Of course, you, because that's your identity in Christ. I'm not striving to go to heaven. I'm not striving to be saved. I'm not striving to be righteous. All of that's in Christ. I rest in that daily. I don't ever wonder if I'm going to slip and fall out of His good graces today. But I do have some fear and some trembling facing the darkness, knowing that I can be easily consumed by what the darkness puts upon me rather than what I put upon that darkness. And that's a big deal. At least I believe that it is. Why? One sentence Jesus tells Pilate. I just want you to see this again. John 18, 36. Jesus answered Pilate, my kingdom's out of this world. Just, you can just stop right there. Because we're certainly, we're just barely ready for that first sentence. We're really not ready for the next few. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would fight. So we'll leave that alone for now. But just look at that first sentence. Where's his kingdom? Out of this world. Okay, so when you get stuff like the Sermon on the Mount, what are you getting? You're getting information that's not of this world. Right? Okay. If you're getting information that's not of this world, where must you be from? Now you're getting it. And that's part of what it means to follow Jesus. See, you are not just following Jesus from 2,000 years ago. You are products of the resurrected man. You are products of the first fruit. You are the body. We love to say things like the, head, the body doesn't exist without the head. Let me flip that around. The head doesn't exist without the body. Let me soak that in. Hear that again. So, you know, the body doesn't exist without the head. We like to say that because we mean like the, the church is nothing without Jesus. Okay. What about a head without a body? What's Jesus without the church? You go, he's still a king of kings, lord of lords. But what's his extension on the earth? His body. So the Jesus that we so rightfully claim is the king of a kingdom has as his body in that kingdom you. And me. Ready to fear and tremble? We'll work that out on the earth. It's worth working out. Certainly worth fearing and trembling over because you have great potential. So the more 
that you see yourselves as not of this world, the more you will see the Jesus principles as being expressions of the salvation you are working out in this world. If you know you're not of this world, then whatever it is Jesus commands and you're supposed to be working that out, that's the ingredients you work out. And of course, they're not simple. They're not of this world. They're unfamiliar to your ear. Some of them don't even make sense. Why is he asking me to do that? That's illogical. You go, welcome to the wrestling out of concepts bigger than you because they don't fit in this frame. But that doesn't mean we just give up and just go, okay, whatever. I'll just live the way the world lives. I'll live any old way instead. Exposure to Jesus as the light of the world will illuminate our darkness. So be patient, guys. Be patient. If you aren't seeing manifestations, then see more of Jesus and then just work out what you see him working in. This is why we need an epiphany. A good gospel epiphany. We need a revealing of Jesus that's ongoing. We need to see him again. And see him again. And see him again. As we see him, he illuminates our darkness. I think for too long, the Holy Spirit woke me up with this early this morning. He said, for too long, you have thought of darkness as sin and evil. Darkness is just the place the light hasn't fallen. Mm -hmm. Now that is a fact that I know, but the Lord was speaking it loudly in my heart this morning to say, emphasize that darkness is in the heart of all of us too because there are places the light hasn't yet fallen. There are things I don't yet know that I want to know. And in that case, I'm in the dark, quote unquote. I'm in the dark. I'm not darkness. I've been delivered from darkness into the kingdom of light. I'm not darkness, but I'm in the dark in some areas. And the light of Jesus is the answer for the areas that I'm in the dark. And as his light penetrates whatever room I've closed off or haven't even thought to get into yet, that room becomes loaded with potential to be the place I wrestle with what I'm learning so that it can come out because I'm the light of the world. It's not just that Jesus is the light of the world. I too am the light of the world, which helps us land right here. And that is on a revelation that what has to happen is not a moment, not a flip of the switch. I was lost, then I'm saved. But rather a progression of seeing Jesus across time. Not just my moment when I met him, because how many of you have met people who said a sinner's prayer and never had an illumination of Jesus in their life? I've met more than I know how to count. Because for a long time, all we tried to do people to do was say the prayer. Come up here. How many of you here haven't accepted Jesus? And you could play a song, tell a sob story, do it just right, pique people's emotions, get them to come up front, say a prayer, they'd cry, they'd walk. They weren't disciples of Jesus. They were captive to the moment. And now we might go, yeah, but they really got saved. Okay, I'm not here to argue what happened in the, in, in the realm of eternity. What do you know about eternity anyway? I mean, really, we, we act like experts on that. That guy was going to hell and he's going to heaven. We don't even know what we're talking about. We, we don't have any idea. We've not been to either one. But we can meet Jesus through an experience of progressive revelation and know more than tomorrow than we know today. And that we can speak to. So maybe that we could speak to in them. And so I've met a lot of people, raise a hand, said a prayer, signed a card, even dunked them in a baptistry. 
Two weeks later, they're gone, never see them again. If they make it back the second week, doubtful. We work on them all week long, phone trees, get them in church, because we're really not sure it's stuck. That ought to told us something, that we had to phone tree them to death to get them to show up in week number two. And yet, if you see Jesus or something so transformative, probably don't have to have the phone tree. Like, I'd like to see more. I mean, there's more. I'd like to find out more about that. That's walking into it. Now, we all kind of think we're past that. Like, oh, yeah, I met Jesus and I've had progressive revelation. But, you know, I'm all past that whole him doing that in my life thing. I disagree. And I think I've had, I'm having another little mini epiphany. And that is I've wrestled for a long time on what it looks like to, quote, unquote, get saved. Like, what do we do about this? How do we get people to go from darkness to light? Well, first of all, we admit that we don't do it. It's not our job. We don't take people from darkness to light. We don't resurrect Lazarus. We just pull grave clothes off of him. Jesus does the resurrecting. But we push Jesus up there so much. We, we, we live it. We proclaim it. We sing it. We talk it to the point that he begins to rise in people's lives. And that is a progression that even though I gave my heart to Jesus in September 1983... I've had to be re-illuminated 10,000 times since then. 100,000 times since then. Because that's what it means to meet the sun, the S-U-N. See, it came up today, but it's not up anymore. And it doesn't mean Jesus goes down in your life. It just means that you get another sunrise. That's the beauty of sunrises. You get one, you go, well, that was amazing. Oh boy, it'd be nice if that would happen again. You go, well, guess what? It's, it's like 24 hours away. You're going to get another one. And so it happens again. But that's not foreign to the believer. We meet Jesus. One of the reasons why we're losing the luster on this is we've stopped making Jesus lovely. It stopped being about Jesus. It started being about everything else. So it's not exciting anymore. Where it's not about Jesus anymore, we're getting burned out. You make it about Jesus again. Watch people's eyes light up that ever met him. Watch the excitement re-enter the room. It starts to become about him again. So this is that little mini epiphany. It's this verse, 2 Peter 1.19. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Look at this. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises where? Not look to the eastern skies and wait on the day Jesus comes back. Then people will really know the truth. Peter could have said that and he didn't. Because the gospel message to Peter was not wait on Jesus to show up and prove everybody wrong. The gospel message to Peter was the light shines in a dark place and the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And he's talking to believers. Who's the morning star? Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Okay, this is unambiguous. I mean, it's pretty obvious who the morning star is. Jesus is declared to be the star. Peter says, as he rises in your life, he just uses a sun illustration, but he calls out Jesus. As Jesus rises in your life, the dark places become light. We can work it out. We're not done yet. We're not finished yet. We can work it out. It's our privilege. It's our obligation. Keep looking to the horizon in the middle of your darkness. The same guy that writes that in Peter, 
goes, you're going to have the dark places are going to be illuminated as the day star rises in your hearts. He has to be thinking back to the night that he denied Jesus. And after the third denial, while warming his hands by a charcoal fire, he hears a rooster crow in the distance. And then he hears the rooster crow again. And he remembers that Jesus told him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then he has to have this revelation that when the rooster crows, it means the sun's coming up, not going down. So I got to think, every moment of Peter's life, he could hear the rooster crowing. Because the rooster crowing meant the darkness is behind you. The best is yet to come. Now get out there today and work that out. And if we live from that, we don't have to have the answers on the Sermon on the Mount, but we'll take it serious. We don't have to know all it means, but we'll know it means something. Something worth paying attention to. We can work it out. It's our honor. So let's do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what's been, for me, a, a, a inspiring moment with you. I've, I've had these pockets of moments this week where some of this wrestling brought me daybreak and I'm, I'm, I'm excited not that I've got an answer but that I'm sitting on an assurance that I have permission to work it out. And in some ways that's really all we need. Thank you for that. That's liberty. Thank you for that. And as we work it out, may we just remember that it will happen because the day star rises in our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.